it's uh, uh, my pleasure to be able to introduce our uh, second speaker. But before I do, having having left you uh, hanging with the snow emergency at the end of the last remarks, I, I should tell you that uh, uh, Chris Hollandon is making inquiries right now uh, about uh, university services and about uh, uh, dinner and uh, transportation. Uh, we think everything's going to work out. <laughs> we'll let you know before the. Uh, uh, precepts uh, uh, begin. Uh, she and I have agreed that she and I uh, both have Subarus, so that if we need to start uh, shuttling people over the parking lots, uh, that's Plan B. But hopefully, hopefully, we're sticking with Plan A, which is what is on the schedule. And we're sure, in any event, that the uh, first thing we're going to do is, is proceed to our uh, our second lecture. And having now heard from Anne Marie Slaughter of the class of 1980. We move uh, along exactly one year and, and go to Professor Martin Flaherty of the Princeton class of uh, 1981. Uh, Professor Flaherty is someone whom uh, some of you have heard already. He was one of our uh, after-dinner panelists at the uh, uh, last session. Uh, he is a uh, professor of law at the uh, Fordham uh, Law School, where he specializes in, uh, in constitutional law. Uh, constitutional history uh, and international human rights and international law. So he's also able to respond to leftover questions from the last uh, uh, lecture. He's in fact the director of the uh, Crowley Center, uh, director and I believe co-founder of the Crowley Center on International Human Rights uh, at the Fordham Law School, where he has led human rights uh, 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 missions to a number of uh, different countries and uh, published reports on the work uh, that he and his colleagues have uh, done there. He is currently visiting uh, Princeton and uh, teaching in the Woodrow Wilson School as a fellow in the program in Law and Public Affairs. Um, I should also add that, uh, uh, as those of you know who are here for the dinner, afternoon panel, uh, before going uh, into teaching, he uh, clerked for uh, Justice Byron White on the United States uh, Supreme Court. His uh, topic this afternoon is uh, Devolution by Decree, the Supreme Court, States' Rights, and the new uh, federalism. So I hope you'll join me in uh, welcoming Professor Martin Flaherty to Princeton High School. Um, thank you uh, very much, Chris. Uh, and thank you all for, for being here, despite the weather conditions. Uh, I, I can only infer that you're either, on the one hand, exceptionally interested in constitutional law, or on the other hand, you feel you're just snowed in, and there's nowhere else to go. Uh, I'll go with the former assumption uh, and proceed from there. Um, before I really plunge into my remarks, I do want to say that it is a double, a double privilege to be here. Um, First, uh, just to be able to, uh, as one alumnus uh, to alumni, uh, share uh, whatever knowledge I have uh, on this particular uh, topic. I think uh, these uh, alumni study programs are just fantastic. Um, secondly, it's also a privilege to be here because, as uh, uh, Chris indicated, I am uh, spending this year at the Program on Public Affairs uh, at Princeton. This is really, you know, I've been back, of course, as any alumnus would be for reunions, not just every fifth year, but every year and every other year. Uh, but it's, this is the first time I've been down here on any sustained basis in over 20 years. And you really do forget what an incredible institution uh, this is. Uh, uh, both Dean Slaughter and I have been kind of running back and forth between this and a really uh, exceptional conference on uh, U.S. foreign policy in light of post-9-11. There is so much going on at this uh, campus, it, it is really astonishing. Uh, there isn't a day that goes by where I feel there are three or four things that I want to see and can only make one of them. 
Um, the other way it's exceptional is is just how well kept up the place is and what you find. I, mean, I didn't even know this existed. And I would often joke to friends over the years that, you know, at Princeton, things were so well maintained that even the squirrels kind of get personal pampered care and grow by. And I used to think I was just sort of engaging in hyperbole until I actually came down here. And now I wonder, you know, uh, they, they actually look pretty, uh, pretty fluffy to me uh, since I've been here. Um, now, let me start uh, with uh, uh, the topic of states' rights and federalism, particularly the recent Supreme Court um, jurisprudence on that, with three snapshots. And first, let me ask, um, this microphone is working, and you can all hear me even if I wander around, because uh, for better or for worse, a habit of many law professors is not just the Socratic method, which I promise I, I won't do, uh, but also to kind of wander around in a way that uh, 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 humanities lecturers often tend not to. Let me start with three um, snapshots that concern um, the issue of federalism as a structural feature of our constitutional scheme. Uh, the first is from uh, a fellow alumnus, uh, James Madison, who I believe was class of 1775. Uh, and just to indulge in one more little kind of introductory Princeton anecdote, one of my favorite things uh, here is in uh, McLean House, the alumni house, there is a portrait of James Madison. And in kind of classic institutional fashion, the label says James Madison in this order. First president of the Princeton Alumni Association, fourth president of the United States. <laughs> Let me read from one of Madison's more celebrated passages um, from uh, the Federalist, Federalist 51. Uh, in this passage, he writes primarily about the uh, structural feature of our constitutional scheme, separation of powers, which is usually seen as the I'm sorry, the horizontal separation of power between the president, um, the Congress, and the courts. Um, but towards the end, he uh, relates that to what we will talk about today, which is uh, the vertical um, uh, fracturing of power, uh, federalism. And here's how he says it. Um, there are, moreover, two considerations particularly applicable to the federal system of America, which place that system in a very interesting uh, point of view. First, in a single republic, all of the power surrendered by the people is submitted to the administration of a single government, and the usurpations are guarded against by a division of that government into distinct and separate departments. In the compound republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments, and then uh, the portion allotted to each, subdivided among distinct and separate departments. Hence, a double security arises to the rights of the people. The different governments will control each other, which is the states and the federal government. And at the same time, each will be controlled by itself, but both on the state level and on the federal level, there exists separation of powers, which will also uh, prevent uh, tyranny, uh, along with providing other virtues. Um, that is Madison's uh, take on it. Uh, there is a lot of interpretation one can do both about that passage and about Madison's views in general. But let me fast forward now to two radically different ideas concerning um, the value of 
set of uh, federalism within our system. The first comes from the late, uh, and I add great, uh, constitutional law professor Charles Black of the Columbia and uh, Yale Law Schools, who uh, recently uh, died. And uh, Charles Black was, uh, among other things, involved on the original briefs in uh, Brown versus Board of Education. That's in a way he made his uh, original mark. And um, I don't know if anyone was privileged enough to know him uh, or have him as a teacher. He, he was Atticus Finch. He was this southerner who was uh, a very powerful interpreter of the Constitution on behalf of rights. And I was fortunate enough to have him when he was late in his career, and I'm glad there's a bulletin board here, and what he would do when he would begin his lecture on federalism would be he'd you know, draw something like this. And since we're in this state, you know, for the moment, let's do something like that. You know, if that looks kind of familiar. Um, and then, you know, he'd draw trees, and he'd draw, you know, rivers and train stations. And in his southern accent, which I won't really try to hazard, he says, you know, no one can tell me that any contraption that looks like that has anything called rights. Okay. That he wants to deny the very notion of the idea of states' rights. For him, rights only attach to the individual that governments exercise powers they shouldn't be conceived of as uh, uh, possessing rights. Uh, that's the Charles Black position. Then to fast forward uh, uh, beyond that uh, to, to name drop in terms of uh, one of my own classes, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, a few years ago, guest taught in one of my um, constitutional law classes. And indeed, it was, uh, happened to be when we were uh, covering federalism. And Kennedy gave a very radical, uh, radically different kind of view of what uh, federalism was all about. He was just talking about a case that uh, I'll discuss, uh, United States versus Morrison, in which the court struck down the Violence Against Women Act enacted by Congress, which provided, among other things, a cause of action for uh, uh, sexual assault that individual women could bring against their uh, uh, people they were accused, accusing of uh, assault. Uh, and in Kennedy's conception, the striking down of that measure, which provides a remedy for a quite dramatic assault on one's personal liberty and integrity, was to him a blow for liberty. Uh, he said that it's precisely because, and trying to allude to Madison earlier, that we need to have a robust system where the um, governments on the state level and on the federal level can check one another, that it is appropriate and indeed compelled by the court to um, occasionally stop the federal government when it overreaches. And in this case, it overreached, even though it happened to be something that arguably was uh, on various policy grounds a very good thing. Um, he didn't have that last part, but that's, uh, that was his conception. So there we have it. We have a kind of general quotation from Madison, just putting this doctrine uh, on the table and relating it to the other structural doctrine, separation of powers. We have Charles Black really questioning how important this doctrine is and should be. Uh, and secondly, Justice Kennedy, uh, who is uh, not only views this doctrine as exceptionally important, but indeed is one of the justices who has done much to revive the doctrine in the last 10 years. 
So what I want to do with the balance of my time here today is first just discuss the basic doctrinal framework of federalism. For constitutional lawyers, what is federalism? What does it mean when you are arguing cases before the Supreme Court or uh, just thinking about the Constitution? What are the basics that one needs to know about the doctrine? Then secondly, what I want to talk about is the world of federalism that we have departed from. And that world roughly started with uh, the New Deal uh, in the 1930s. In fact, we can even date uh, the emergence of this regime to 1937. Uh, and it was a conception of federalism that lasted almost unchallenged for 60 years. And I want to talk uh, about that regime within the context of the doctrinal framework that I had just laid out. That's the second thing I want to do. The third thing I want to do is talk about how the world is now different. How we have had, if not a revolution, certainly significant devolution that the court has uh, decreed from the states to, I'm sorry, from the federal government to the states. And I want to talk about um, the cases that have affected this fairly radical change that has uh, come really in just the last decade. And to a lot of, a lot of observers, uh, pardon me, came more or less out of the blue. Finally, the third thing I want to do is critique that change. Uh, I think one of the most important things that uh, anyone who teaches constitutional law can do is not just give what the developments are, not just to describe it, but to allow those who we are discussing the topic with uh, means to critique what the court is doing. Because after all, the court isn't and should not be seen to be the final word. It should be an informed citizenry that thinks and engages with the Constitution that can intelligently critique what the court's work product is. And I will give you my own view, which I think it may be somewhat provocative, um, but you know, hopefully it will be because that will spur questions both after the lecture and then during the precepts. So that's the roadmap. Um, let me start then. Um, you can break down federalism in many ways, but I want to just confine myself to two basic conceptions of federalism. Like separation of powers, like constitutionalism, it's one of these vague umbrella terms that can mean very many things. I want to focus on two, and these are the two that I really focus on when I'm teaching uh, my students uh, in my law school classes. Um, the first I want to talk about concerns the reach of federal power. How far, in particular, the Congress can go in enacting laws, particularly laws that uh, reach behavior or activity that seems to be primarily local in concern. Um, now, this doctrine in the jargon of constitutional law, sometimes uh, referred to, uh, I'll have other labels for it, but the doctrine of limited enumerated powers is a key to this conception. Because the idea is that the Constitution does not create a government, a national government of plenary power, 
as is the case in many other constitutional regimes around the world, but rather it is a constitution that specifies distinct powers, however elastic, to our federal government. And the idea is that there are indeed certain things that the federal government cannot do, and the default position is when that power runs out, it will be left to the states to uh, undertake the regulation. Now, what is the source uh, for this doctrine? Uh, the source is immediately, uh, in the first instance, you know, the text of the Constitution. And one thing that uh, I think may or may not be clear to you at this point is how little uh, the text of the Constitution may actually account for what we call constitutional law, but it's always good to try to start with the text. And the doctrine of limited and enumerated powers derives from, first and foremost, Article I of the Constitution, which specifies the powers of Congress, in particular Article I, Section 8. And Article I, Section 8 gives a larger list of powers to Congress. Uh, and even in the late 18th century, the one power that was seen as the most potentially expansive was the power accorded to Congress to regulate interstate Congress. Uh, uh, commerce, commerce among the several states and with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. That was always seen in conjunction with the Necessary and Proper Clause as potentially the most expansive grant of authority to Congress. Um, however, you know, the notion uh, uh, was that this was not a plenary grant of power. You couldn't do anything under this clause, presumably. You could only regulate commerce that uh, affected, uh, 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 that, that had um, uh, some interstate component. Another source for this doctrine was something that was put in the Bill of Rights largely at the insistence of the anti-federalists who were the guardians of concerns about the states, and that's the Tenth Amendment. And the Tenth Amendment says that the enumeration of certain powers in, uh, in this Constitution, actually, sometimes it's good for a lawyer to actually read the text rather than paraphrase. So, um, no, because I think it is critical to quote this um, precisely because much will turn on what exactly the Tenth Amendment means. Here, okay. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Okay, so that's the other side. There's this grant of power that are limited and enumerated, and there's a provision that seems to say, and the default position shall be what the federal government doesn't have, the state shall have. Okay. Now, when I teach this kind of federalism, and I'm at pains to actually distinguish this form of federalism from what I'm about to talk about, um, I find it helps my students mnemonically to use um, a, several tropes to kind of keep this in mind. Uh, one trope, which is the dull one, it's, it's the term of art that you've seen in law reviews, is distributive federalism. It's the distribution of power, uh, regulatory power, what is allocated to the federal government, what is allocated to the states. Um, the more kind of zippy tropes that I like to use are um, sword federalism. How far does the sword of federal power run? And then finally, and this is really to get my first year students, although even this is kind of dated, I, I like to indulge in Star Trek analogies. Uh, and I tend to, and this will become more clear as I run an example, 
um, I, I will call this photon torpedo federalism. Uh, I'll explain that in a moment. Hold the thought. Uh, that's the one kind of federalism. Now, a lot of casebooks prior to this devolution revolution didn't adequately, in my view, distinguish this kind of federalism, the distributed or sword federalism, from um, a second kind of federalism, which really captures the idea of states' rights per se more nearly. Um, this second kind of federalism involves not the reach of federal power, but instead involves constitutional barriers that protect state governments, per se, as state governments, from the reach of federal power that would otherwise be legitimate if it reached private activity. Okay, that's a mouthful. Um, but, and I'll, I'll unpack that in a second with a real live example. Um, now, what is the source of this kind of federalism, this idea that state government has a barrier against which the federal government uh, cannot, uh, uh, that the federal government can't penetrate? Well, uh, one source, uh, it is said, is, uh, in terms of text, is the Tenth Amendment. Now, one might query why, and when I get to the critique portion, one might query why when the Tenth Amendment seems to be uh, in language that only speaks to the distribution of power. Nonetheless, the claim is that the Tenth Amendment embodies a conception of, and I'll now uh, introduce the uh, uh, key word here, sovereignty, the notion of state sovereignty, which includes with it a barrier. Okay. Um, what are some of the tropes I use for this? Shield federalism is the obvious one. You know, the first kind of federalism involves the reach of the federal sword. If the reach of the federal sword extends long enough to reach a state, um, then the question becomes, is there a shield? And uh, I should make clear that when we're talking about shields, they are shields that are judicially enforceable, okay, in particular by the Supreme Court. Um, the other, you know, uh, the more kind of Star Trek trope would be, you know, force field federalism, okay, you know, the torpedo would bounce off this force field around this state. Um, my students remember this, I mean, they tell me 10 years afterwards this is what, uh, what they remember, although as I say, it's dated, I have a five-year-old daughter, and I'm trying to figure out some sort of metaphor that involves the Olsen twins, you know, I can teach this, but I haven't been successful so far. Let me um, make this clear with an example from a case that I believe uh, you read. Garcia versus San Antonio Metropolitan Transit Authority. Okay. And um, I'll try to quickly get rid of New Jersey here. And I grew up here, so I only do that with regret. Um, and put a schema of what this case was about. What this case was about was a federal statute that would regulate wages and hours, okay, which was in many ways a classic post-New Deal statute. The source of the statute is the Commerce Clause. Okay. Um, more to say about how that's so in a second, although it, even uh, at this point it should be you know, relatively evident when you were regulating wages and hours that may seem to have something to do with interstate commerce. That doesn't necessarily follow, but at least, you know, it doesn't seem to be an outrageous stretch. Now, the commerce power in this statute was being used to regulate the wages and hours of many uh, individuals, 
But this case involved individuals who worked for a transit authority. Okay, so this is, is uh, I don't have time to you know, really uh, uh, elaborate on the sketch. This is you know, a subway or a bus with the workers inside. And I'll do this twice because this is what is critical. Now, the question in terms of sword federalism is, let's posit that this is a sub, let's say it's the dinky. That's a good example. I had just thought of this. Uh, I'm wondering how the dinky is doing in the snow. But let's say this is the dinky. Okay? The dinky does not go far. And it clearly goes within the state here. Okay? It's a purely intrastate activity, even if it is commercial in some sense. Or at least that, that your, your first impression is that it is purely intrastate. The question in terms of sword federalism is, can Congress regulate the wages and hours of workers who work for the dinky? If the dinky were a private operation, let me posit that, if it were a private railroad that just you know, some individual ran, could the federal government regulate these workers in the name of regulating interstate commerce? Okay? Before the New Deal, that might have been a question. But after the New Deal, this would be considered a no-brainer. And indeed, even after some of the cases I'll talk about, I think it would still be considered a no-brainer. But there is no doubt that under the post-New Deal commerce uh, jurisprudence, that the federal government could regulate this sort of situation if it were private. Okay? That was not clear before the New Deal at all. Okay. Uh, I'll have a little more to say about that when I get to how we got from one place to the other. That's sword federalism, or, you know, if you want to put that Star Trek image, Commerce causes the dilithium crystals, here's the photon torpedo, it goes boom, right here. Okay. What's bad about this metaphor, though, is you're not vanquishing these workers, you're actually trying to help their lot. Okay. Um, now, what about what the dinky is, a state-run entity, New Jersey Transit, okay? And let's say it was just, it wasn't New Jersey Transit, it was Mercer County Transit, which would be, for constitutional purposes, a state-run entity. But, you know, the just is very small, clearly intrastate, not linked, you know, in terms of management to the rest of the New Jersey Transit system. Okay, here, the key claim would be that, you know, we already know that the federal government can regulate these workers on the grounds of interstate commerce. Is there something about the fact that this is state-run rather than private-run that makes a difference? And the claim of those who would advance what I would call sovereignty federalism, to use the technical term, or a technical term, or shield federalism, or force field federalism, whatever you want to say, is that judges would enforce a barrier in which this power would bounce off. Okay? Those are the two kinds of uh, 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 federalisms I want to talk about doctrinally. Now, you might ask yourself, which one is more important? And I think the answer is going to be pretty evident. Um, dare I do anything Socratic? I mean, which, where are the states higher? Yeah. With the move of the pencil up there, that's volunteer. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yeah, well, 
Oh, you're a preceptor. Oh, okay. Well, then I really won't, won't show you up. I, the last thing I want to do is diminish authority. Yeah. If you have a state that's got a lot of, that's got more employees, then there are private employees in the state, which I don't think, you know, even kind of quasi-socialist states at their highest, like New York, ever got to. I mean, the idea would be this is more important because they're just, they're more private, there's more private activity than state activity. Okay. And so that's why most of the kind of concept, and most of the fighting during the New Deal and after this is going to be on this. This is not unimportant, though, because whether the federal government can regulate the states, you know, is, is often important. Okay. So, anyway, those are the two forms of federalism that I want to talk about. Okay. Now, let me uh, now move, uh, and any questions, I'll, I'll actually take questions at this point, any questions on this point, because this is just the doctrinal basis, and for some of you this may seem, you know, pretty straightforward and evident, but actually when it comes to how constitutional law casebooks unpack this, they don't always make this distinction, although they're starting to make it now in light of some of the cases um, that we'll be looking at. Okay, so, now, let me talk first about um, what things looked like when really anyone, I think, in this room would have first gone to law school. Okay, I think that's, that's safe to say. Um, now, first let me deal with distributed federalism, or the sword federalism. Um, and let me actually just say one thing in this regard about a period even previous to the New Deal. Previous to the New Deal, because this is important to know, this was an enormous question, how far this would go. Okay? My favorite case on this is a case that no casebook includes, and I can never understand why, um, but I think it's one of the best teaching cases of all time to try to convey what people thought about the reach of federal power before the New Deal. And it's a case called Federal um, uh, Baseball Club of Baltimore versus the National League. Okay. And let me give just a quick aside here. I mean, both Chris Eiswood and I are big baseball fans, uh, although we won't, I, I'm not going to tell you who I root for because then my evaluations are just going to plummet. Uh, it's the Yankees. So. Uh, what, as you may know from baseball history, there, there, there was uh, in the teens a uh, third league that was formed, the Federal League, that tried to um, steal players from the National and the American Leagues. And for a time they were successful, but then after a while, as any good monopoly would, Major League Baseball, the National American League, joined forces and was able to starve out this upstart league. One legacy of the upstart league, by the way, was Wrigley Field. That was built for the federal franchise. Okay? Now, in a last-ditch attempt to stay afloat, what the federal league did was bring an antitrust suit under federal law. Okay? This was monopolistic behavior. It seemed clearly monopolistic behavior. They could get treble damages and you know, get enough revenue to, keep the, to refloat the league. All right, what happened here? Uh, they ran into, first of all, a judge who was hostile to this claim in Chicago, a judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis. So you can see where his career went. Okay. He became, for those of you who don't know, the first commissioner of baseball afterwards. So. Uh, but more importantly, it went to the Supreme Court. 
Okay. And there the opinion was written not by Kenneth Mountain Landis, but by the great Oliver Wendell Holmes. And what did Oliver Wendell Holmes and the Supreme Court decide? They said that Major League Baseball was not an activity in interstate commerce. That the commerce power, you know, if you change this to a baseball diamond, the commerce power couldn't reach it. Instead, baseball was a local exhibition, and local exhibitions were the kind of things that only states regulated. And therefore, the Sherman Antitrust Act did not reach baseball. That's where the antitrust exemption from Major League Baseball comes from. And it's this anomaly that has stayed through the law, despite what I'll talk about in a second, which is the New Deal change on this. Now, the New Deal change on this can be described, uh, uh, illustrated by two cases. One at uh, uh, the, uh, during the New Deal, or just after kind of the height of the New Deal. Another case in the 60s. Because what happens with the New Deal, for reasons we can talk about, but which I won't have time to address, is that this narrow conception of how far the reach of federal power went and the conversely robust conception of how uh, much the states retained really just went like this, and then arguably went like this, and this, and just almost to infinity. Um, the case that would illustrate this, uh, uh, where I think this doctrine of almost limitless regulatory authority in the name of the commerce power was first enshrined, or at least most clearly enshrined, for me, is a case from 1942 called Rickard versus Filburn. Rickard versus Filburn, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about you know, some cases that I think you weren't assigned, some cases that you did have reading about, um, and I hope that works. Rickard versus Filburn involves another state, but the same idea. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I know I'm feeble here, but at least you know. Uh, okay, and what do we have? We have a farm. Uh, and and the, the names are it, a farm owned by a farmer named Roscoe Filburn. And Filbert, what happened was, uh, in a classic New Deal measure, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, which was pursuant to the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was passed under the Commerce Power, issued a regulation trying to limit the amount of wheat that could be grown by farmers. And the idea was, if you limit supply, that will raise demand, that will raise prices, then there'll be an upward spiral, um, uh, wheat will command more money, and all these farms that have gone bankrupt will now um, become prosperous again, to oversimplify what was going on. Well, Roscoe Filburn had his own little wheat field here, which he, on which he grew about 30 bushels of wheat a year. Okay? And further, this wheat was purely for the consumption of his family. Okay, so we're not talking about interstate commerce. Uh, we're not even talking about, you know, inter-county commerce or even inter-farm commerce. This is purely intra-farm commerce, and there's not even any commerce, if you want to think about it, because no money is changing hands. Okay? What does the Supreme... If, if any case would seem to indicate that there is this local activity that the federal store could not reach, this would seem to be it. 
But what the Supreme Court held was no. That Congress could, you know, through the regulation, regulate even this in the name of interstate commerce. The theory was that this was an activity, and this shows you how far they'd come from the baseball case, that did substantially affect interstate commerce. Now, you might ask yourself, that's obviously um, specious, because how could 30 bushels of wheat you know, to have a substantial effect on interstate commerce and give Congress the ability to, to uh, um, uh, regulate it. The key move that the court makes is this activity in the aggregate, this activity as conducted by those who are similarly situated, which is what Congress would be looking at when it's regulating, does have a substantial impact on interstate commerce. So this one farm may not have a substantial impact, but this one farm times 500,000 other wheat farms in the country would have a substantial impact. Because if all of those farmers were consuming wheat, that would have a substantial impact on the wheat market and on prices, and that's what gives the federal government the basis to step in. But notice how far this goes. I mean, if this, in the aggregate, the, the in the aggregate logic is almost unstoppable. Because almost any activity, time, I can sneeze here, as I probably walk, having walked through the snow, I can sneeze times 300 million. Sneezing is going to have some sort of substantial impact on commerce. And thus, Congress can regulate my sneezing. Okay? Well, in fact, that is the logic that the Supreme Court carried on from 1937. This is a 42 case, really up to the early 90s. The other case I want to talk about in this regard uh, is um, West Coast uh, Hotel. No, I'm sorry, Heart of Atlanta Motel. West Coast Hotel is actually the 37 case. Um, Heart of Atlanta Motel versus uh, um, United States. Thank you. It's Katzenbach versus McClellan. Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States. What did this involve? Well, at least one thing you can say, and this is going to be critical for what the Rehnquist Court has been doing, at least you can say, well, we're still talking about markets, we're still talking about uh, on one level commerce. Although, interestingly enough, Justice Thomas would look at this case and say, this is not about commerce at all, it's about agriculture. Okay, so there is a conception of sword federalism that is categorical that says if it's manufacturing or if it's agriculture, that's not commerce and Congress can't regulate. But let's put that objection aside. There's a sense in which this is dealing with markets, it is dealing with national prices. It does seem to have a commercial feel to it. What did um, Heart of Atlanta Motel deal with? It dealt with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You may think that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a Civil Rights Act. It's not. In constitutional terms, it's a commercial regulation. Why? The reason is there really is no obvious power or non-problematic power that enables Congress to pass civil rights legislation. You might think it's the 14th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment by its terms only blocks state action and gives Congress the, uh, uh, the power to um, implement that amendment. So the problem is how do you reach private racial discrimination or discrimination of any other kind. And so, now there were arguments that the Congress should make a go of it 
with the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause as a source anyway. But the commerce power, the reach of the federal sword was so long and so secure by the time of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that Congress bet that the safest foundation for the Civil Rights Act would be the Commerce Clause. And the tests came, a few tests came before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, as Congress predicted, upheld the measure. Part of Atlanta Motel deals with one of the ones that also seems very narrow. I won't draw this on the board, but it involves Ollie's Barbecue. Uh, oh no, that's Catherine Backwards and McClung. I'm getting it. Uh, I'll talk about both quickly. Heart of Atlanta Motel dealt with a private discrimination by a hotel near the heart of Atlanta, but it was near um, interstate. Okay? And so what the Supreme Court said was, well, you know, this substantially affects interstate commerce because hotels in their interstates and the aggregates, you know, the same logic of Rickard versus Filburn, that, you know, affects interstate commerce. If they discriminate, that will affect, you know, uh, people traveling, that will affect the national economy Congress can um, regulate. Councilman versus McClung is the even narrower one. It dealt with Ollie's Barbecue in Birmingham, Alabama. Ollie's Barbecue was apparently this ramshackle play. I don't know if anybody's from Birmingham. Have you ever been to Ollie's? It's a nice restaurant. <laughs> This is, this is blowing all of my, my, you know, my image, my fictional image of Ollie's. Okay, it's a nice restaurant, but it's not near interstates, or at least wasn't at the time. And indeed, what the people said in, in favor of the regulation was, uh, now think of how this cuts. The, the council arguing for the fact that Ollie's in, implicated interstate commerce was that 46% of Ollie's meat came from out of state. Well, if you're a good attorney on the other side, what are you going to make of that particular statistic? Most of the meat comes from in the state. You know? So uh, nonetheless, the Supreme Court again applying this rationale of does this substantially affect interstate commerce in the aggregate upheld the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it's on that basis that the Civil Rights Act survives. And a key question that you should have in your mind when I talk about some of the cases that now roll back and undercut this New Deal judicial consensus is, well, can Rickard and Heart of Atlanta Motel and Katzenbeck versus McClung, can those cases, which also means the Civil Rights Act of 1964, can all of that survive what the court has been doing lately? Interesting question. Um, so there's that. When it comes to um, uh, sovereignty federalism, um, the case involving this uh, is going to be, we've already done, you'll be pleased to know, is Garcia versus San Antonio Metropolitan Transit Authority. Or I should say more accurately, the case that came before it, that it overruled. Because what San Antonio did was actually do this erase the shield. It rejected sovereignty federalism, shield federalism. In doing so, however, it overruled a case that had been decided only nine years before, National League of Cities versus Ussery. And that case had held quite clearly 
that there was a judicially enforceable shield that derived from a conception of state sovereignty. Okay. So, interestingly enough, that kind of New Deal consensus that dismissed state sovereignty wasn't really a function of the New Deal directly at all. It's really something that arose in the 1980s. It actually arose during the Reagan administration, interestingly enough. But it was of a piece, one could argue, of this earlier New Deal revolution. And that's really where things stood until the early 90s. That the reach of federal power in terms of distributed federalism was potentially infinite. And that there really was no judicially enforceable barrier that the states um, enjoyed. Uh, you might ask, well, gee, wasn't, um, or wasn't the court worried about some of Madison's concerns? You know, but truly, it's not a good thing if states are these separate checks on the federal government and the federal government can do whatever it wanted with them. Well, the answer that Justice Blackman gave was the states actually back here in Washington have a disproportionate influence on federal policymaking through many different ways, the most obvious one being the Senate. States have equal suffrage in the Senate, um, and that through that, uh, they, they, the dice is loaded, so to speak, in favor of uh, state concerns. That is a controversial proposition in terms of political science, but that's what the court said. It said it's not that we're unconcerned about the states, but that their protection lies when the statute is passed. It's not up to us to shield them if they have failed to protect themselves over here. Okay, so those are the two um, uh, two conceptions of federalism and how the world looked until lately. Now, what happened? Early '90s, um, this all starts to change very quickly, very radically, and somewhat out of the blue. I remember being at a constitutional law conference at the University of Michigan in 1990, and one professor, Erwin Chemerinsky, got up and said, "You know." You know, people are talking about you know, civil rights and equal protection and abortion. Let me tell you, states' rights is coming back. You know, believe me, I, I'm reading the tea leaves of certain opinions. And everyone dismissed him as kind of a crank. And lo and behold, you know, 10, 15 years later, his views have been uh, uh, confirmed. Start with distributive federalism, with a sword federalism. Here the key date is 1995, and the key case is United States versus Lopez. Okay. What happens in uh, Lopez is uh, there was the Brady Act, which is also going to figure in the other form of federalism, which criminalized, part of it criminalized possession in uh, schools. This, was, uh, this part was known as the Gun-Free School Zones Act. What did the Gun-Free School Zones Act do? What it did was possession, not selling of guns, because that would be, be easier to call that commercial and easier to tie that to interstate commerce. But the mere possession of a gun within the confines of Princeton High School would be a federal criminal offense. On what basis? The commerce power. How? Wicked versus Fulton. Part of Atlanta Motel, okay? That gun possess, you know, having guns in schools disrupts education, you know, in the aggregate, that affects the national economy, you know, it was a familiar story. 
However, what was unfamiliar was that for the first time since the New Deal, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down an act of Congress as exceeding the commerce power. And this sent kind of shockwaves throughout at least the constitutional law community um, because it was highly unexpected. Now, there were some things about the statute, though, that made people feel that maybe this wasn't such a shocking thing after all. Maybe this, you know, the pendulum had swung very far in favor of national power, but okay, this is just a slight correction. What was it about this statute that uh, caused some people to think that what the court was doing was modest? Congress was sloppy and Congress was lazy. Counterintuitive, I know, but... <laughs> But Congress didn't do things that it did in the Civil Rights Act. It didn't say that this affected interstate commerce, nor did it make findings to that effect. And the court talked about that somewhat, although it talked about other bases as well. Moreover, the court also said, we do not mean to disturb at all Rickard versus Filburn or any of the other New Deal cases. We don't mean to disturb Heart of Atlanta Motel. We don't mean to disturb Katzenbach versus McClung. So many people read this case as really the court slapping Congress on the wrist for, even by Congress's standards, being lazy and sloppy. Okay. Right. Now, since this is Princeton alumni, there may be some former or current Congress people here, so I better, better be careful. Um, but, Doubts concerning that, uh, or, or questions concerning uh, how serious the court was in rolling back this expansive conception of federal power, were to a degree answered in United States versus Morrison. In that case, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one was it was a statute that dealt with, not the gun possession isn't, but that seemed to deal, that was higher profile, that seemed to deal with uh, a much more kind of emotional and obvious national problem, a problem that was the result of a longer campaign. Um, and it was a statute in which Congress appeared to have learned its lesson. Noting what had happened in Lopez, Congress made sure that it talked about the commercial effects of sexual assault and talked about the failure of the states to address this problem adequately. And moreover, made all sorts of findings to that effect. Okay? So, uh, and how am I doing on time, I should say? Uh, okay, five more minutes, great. And so, what, there what the court said was, no, not at all. Uh, in Morrison, uh, uh, it's not Congress's sloppiness. It turns more on what Congress was trying to do to begin with. And in my reading of the case, what the court comes very close to doing is adopting what I referred to before, a kind of categorical notion, saying that, look, we can distinguish this case from the others because this is not in any sense commercial. Uh, sexual assault may have economic consequences, but Harvard Atlanta Motel, Katzenbach versus McClung, you know, Ollie's Barbecue, the motel, Rickard's Farm, all are in some sense inherently commercial. This isn't. 
And it's on the basis of this kind of, in part, quasi-categorical analysis that the court struck down this measure. Now, we're waiting to see how much further the court is going to go. There hasn't been a follow-up case of similar magnitude, but that is, you know, Lopez created questions. Morrison answered some of those questions about how far the rollback would go, but we're still waiting to see the next step. Now, in terms of shield federalism, there has been quite a lot more activity. Garcia hasn't been overruled, per se, but it has been chipped away in many different fashions. And I really want to here talk about one case for sake of time. And that one case for sake of time is um, uh, Prince versus United States. Okay? In that case, also a gun control case, Congress tried to um, implement a federal gun registration policy or background check policy by saying, look, we want local state law, local and state law enforcement officials to run background checks of people who would uh, buy guns. Okay. What the court, and so that state official is doing something. Okay. What the court there said was, no, and, uh, and this is an idea that came from Justice O'Connor, no, the federal government cannot commandeer state executive officials to implement federal programs. Okay. Um, and, you know, it falls short of overruling Garcia, but it, in effect, it, 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 it uh, has the same effect, ultimately. The basis for that is, is largely a reading of the Tenth Amendment that reads the Tenth Amendment not as talking about distribution of powers, but instead as talking about uh, sovereignty. That there is something inherent in state sovereignty that precludes the federal government from regulating the states or telling its officials or legislatures what to do. And there have been a number of cases along these lines. Okay, but I'll stop at that point. Let me just quickly uh, conclude with my uh, critique section, which is that when it comes to these matters, uh, I tend to be far more on the Hamilton side than on the Jefferson side. And, and that's for two sets of reasons. One set of reasons has to do with just the conventional means of constitutional interpretation. To what extent are these cases supported by text, by structure, by history. Okay, uh, that's one set of inquiries. And then the other set of inquiries goes a little bit beyond that, which is to say, to what extent in almost political science terms does judicial devolution in these two senses make sense? Um, I can be brief to the point of being glib uh, when it comes, especially when we deal with the second kind of federalism. To a lesser extent, it's a little more complicated here. But let me just largely concentrate on the shield federalism. When it comes to text that supports judicially enforceable barriers, there is no text. I mean, Articles of Confederation talk about state sovereignty. The federal constitution doesn't. The Tenth Amendment talks about the reach of federal power, although as Justice Stone said, it's just a truism that what the federal government doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have, the states have. 
But that doesn't tell you a priori what the federal government has or doesn't have. So there is, I would you know, argue, no clear text that sustains this kind of, and I'll employ the term consciously, judicial activism. Likewise, structure, and here, structure, I think, is an empty conception on both uh, planes. Um, again, just to focus on the uh, shield federalism for a moment, in Prince versus the United States, Justice Scalia makes the argument that, look, this anti-commandeering principle, this partial barrier, um, derives from the notion that we have two levels of sovereignty in our government, the federal sovereign and the state sovereign. And from that, it follows that the sovereign above cannot tell the executive officers or the sovereign below what to do. That's just almost a matter of political science. Well, Justice Breyer in dissent came along and said, have you looked at the European Union? The European Union has real sovereign states, real sovereign countries, and what the European Union ordinarily does to implement policy is tell the member states and their executive officials to implement policy. Now, Scalia said, well, that's Europe, who cares? But that, that is not on point. His point was inherent in the structure is this prohibition. And all Breyer was saying is, look, I can imagine that not being true, and I don't even have to imagine it. Here's another situation where it is, in fact, not true. And then finally, history, which is actually my bailiwick when it comes to this stuff. Um, and you can make a strong claim and a weak claim. My strong claim would simply be this, that when it comes to states' rights and state power, the federal, uh, the founding, showed a spectrum that ran from anti-federalists like Patrick Henry through moderate nationalists like James Madison at the time, he changes a little later, through high nationalists like um, Alexander Hamilton. And that what you see during the founding is in essence the founding generation fudging this issue. I mean, there isn't wide agreement on how sovereign or not the state should be, how much or little power the federal government shouldn't have. And so to use history as the primary means for these judicially enforced rules is very problematic. Okay? And indeed what the court tends to do on both sides, but particularly on the state's rights side, is to kind of make the kind of history it wants. Okay? So, let me conclude with an irony and an exhortation. The irony is this, that many of the same justices who have been architects of this line of case law were the very same justices who made their career criticizing the Warren Court for concocting the rights of not states, but individuals, where there was no text, no history, no structural basis for it. And so one argument you could make is, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If the Warren Court could be accused of judicial activism in the name of rights, why not this in the name of states' rights? Finally, the exhortation is simply this, and this is what I leave my uh, students with. I wish this had been a Princetonian who said it, but actually it was the founder of the University of Pennsylvania. Benjamin Franklin, at least they say he founded it, Benjamin Franklin said, when the Constitutional Convention uh, closed, this is apocryphal, but it's too good not to be true, 
the convention was secret, and when he left, uh, when he came out, the story goes, someone came up and said, Dr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government do we have? Uh, aristocracy, uh, democracy? And Franklin's uh, response, so it uh, went, was, a republic, sir, if you could keep it. And that's my exhortation, which is whether you agree with me on this or not, and we can explore this either in Q&A or the uh, uh, precepts, is that this is too important to lead to the justices. Any of this is too important solely to lead to the justices. Without a citizenry that is informed about constitutional matters, um, having a Supreme Court resolve it for us um, almost doesn't make a difference. 